0: Our series that we started last week called World Changers. Now last week we were in the book of Exodus, which I'm guessing probably most of you have never been in a Christmas series that was in Exodus the whole time. We're not going to do that here either. We're going to jump into a more traditional passage of scripture, and it kind of uh, was just a blessing to me this week when I even opened it up, and it's a passage of scripture I've seen so many times, but sometimes when you go to those traditional passages of scripture, God speaks afresh to you, and so I'm, my hope for you today is that God will do that. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, today and so i 'm going to pray for us, and we 're going to continue our world changer series. Let me pray, Father, thank you for friends and family and guests and everybody that's here today that you've decided to gather together in your name and I pray as we open up your word that you would energize us some of us we need to be just a refreshment from the week that we've been through, or, or preparation for the things you're going to do this next week, and some of us need to be challenged from your word, there might be somebody here who needs to trust your son, Jesus as Savior, whatever it is that you desire to do in our lives, we just come before you in this moment and pause before we even start into your word, and ask you to open our hearts to that, and we might not even know what it is that you want to do, but please do it, in Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Well, last week we began this series called World Changers, and I started off by asking you the question, what do you think of when I say world changers? And it's natural that many people would think of grandiose names. Like, you think of people who shifted the way that history was going, the you know, George Washingtons of the world, the Abraham Lincolns, Winston Churchills, Nelson Mandela's, these big historical figures that have literally changed history. And so you naturally wouldn't think of yourself, but then I asked you the question, who has God used in your life to have the greatest impact in your life, and for a few of you, maybe a handful, those are historical figures, but for most of you, it's people that the rest of us wouldn't even know their name. It's a, it's a parent. It's a sibling. It's a classmate, a teammate, a coach. It's somebody that God used that brought into your world to change your world, and we talked about last week the process that God uses to develop a world changer, and we looked at the life of Moses, and we saw how God oftentimes takes us through a, a time of preparation, which will often be in a place, a desert place, a dry place, where it almost feels like God's not speaking to us, and and, and we are learning lessons in that spot that we can't learn anywhere else. And he always brings us to a crossroads of faith. And we talked about that process last week. Today, we're not going to talk about the process. We're going to talk about the characteristics of a world changer. And the temptation is to think the same idea— that you, would, you think about these historical figures, so you think this grandiose concept, like you think of the Winston Churchill's, in order to be a world changer, I've got to have, you know, oratory skills, or you think of the Abraham Lincoln's, I've got to have a powerful platform, or maybe I've got to have accomplishments of like a Nobel Prize, and again, you're going to be surprised, because the characteristics we're going to look at are characteristics that should be true in every follower of Jesus Christ, and the question you need to ask yourself as we open up this passage of Scripture is, are they true of me, are they true of you, and the passage is in Luke, Luke chapter one. It's a traditional Christmas passage. And last week we looked at an older man, Moses. This week we look at a very young woman named Mary. And before you remember all the things that you know about Mary, remember she's just a young girl, really a nobody, a peasant girl doing her peasant chores on a normal day. And if you ever thought that that you weren't qualified enough to be a world changer, it's like God goes out of his way here to show you, look at who I'm using. Humble circumstances. And doesn't bring anything to the table. In fact, one commentator I read this week said this about Mary and thinking about her future. It's Kent Hughes. He said, from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody and a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's Mary's outlook. That's whose life we're entering into as we come to this passage of Scripture. And what's happened historically up until this point is that God hasn't spoken to his people through visions, through dreams, through angel visitations in over 400 years until six months before. And it starts in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, and it goes through verse 25, where the angel, the same angel we're going to see in this passage of Scripture, Gabriel, has visited Elizabeth, one of Mary's relatives, has visited actually her husband, Zechariah. And Zechariah has been praying that they would have children. They're well along in age. His wife's barren. They're not able to have children. And the angel says, miraculously, you're going to have a child in your old age. The opposite of Mary's situation, a young age. And he's going to be named John the Baptist. You're going to name him John. And he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And that's the context for what happens here that we pick up in verse 26. Verse 26. It says in verse 26, in the sixth month, and not the sixth month of the year, but the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the one that was just talked about in the the verses right before the one we're reading right now. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel. And so Gabriel, he keeps getting these birth announcement assignments from heaven to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. (laughs) More literally than she could have imagined. Verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And we'll go eventually through verse 38, but let's just pause right there and remember, this is a familiar story. I know most of you probably have heard before what happens next, what the announcement is to her. She doesn't know any of that at this point. She's just a normal peasant girl doing her peasant chores that day. She's living her life, humble outlook on life, humble circumstances that she lives in, and an angel visits her. That's not normal. You know, we see these stories and we might think to ourselves, well, angels must have popped up all the time. It's been 400 years since it happened. It happened six months earlier. She doesn't know that. Her and Elizabeth don't tweet with each other. They don't text each other. There's no Skype. She's living up in the hill country. There's no, she doesn't know that's even happened. So an angel appears to you. You're a 14, 12-year-old, somewhere that range-age girl. Imagine how terrified you'd be. But go back to the verses. It doesn't say she's terrified because of the angel. It says she's greatly troubled at his words. It's the greeting that the angel gives that troubles this woman. And the greeting is, you who are highly favored. She's troubled at that. Hello, Mary. You who are highly favored. What are you, me, highly favored? And then you keep reading, and it says, don't be afraid. You've found favor with God. And the first characteristic that we see of a world changer is that a world changer is highly favored by God. World changers are highly favored by God. Now, some of you might hear those words and think to yourselves, aha, I knew I wasn't a world changer. I'm not highly favored by God because, and you fill in the blank with whatever's in your story. I don't have this education. I don't know these verses. I haven't had these experiences. I'm just a, I've never, maybe I can't. I don't, my, this, these are the mistakes I've made. Whatever the story, you come up with your reason. Before you do that, before you check out on me mentally today, remember who God is speaking to. It's like Luke, when he writes these things, is going out of his way to make it really clear how she brings nothing to the table. There's, there's one religion specifically that makes Mary such a big deal. Some people even worship Mary and they'll pray to Mary. and that's, that's, She would, have, she would be, think that was ridiculous. It's certainly not God's intention. There's no basis for it in Scripture. And you look at the passage and you go to the actual what the Scripture says, and it's pointing out that she's so insignificant just to even start off with where she's at. In Nazareth, to go to Galilee, Galilee wasn't a great place in the mind of religious people. But then to Nazareth? That's like the worst place you could possibly go to. Nazareth. We see in Scripture what people thought of Nazareth when one of, later in John chapter 1, when one of Jesus' first followers is called to come follow him. They say that Jesus is from Nazareth. And Nathaniel must have been an extrovert because he didn't filter his thoughts. He just said the first thing he thought. Na- can anything good come from Nazareth? Now some of you who've just blurted out statements before, I've done that, can you imagine if that got canonized and like forever everyone's reading those words? Well, that's, that's what happened, but it gives you the idea that Nazareth was a despised place. People from Nazareth were considered second-class citizens because oftentimes they couldn't make it to the temple to do the special ceremonies and the worship that would happen there, and so religiously it was like, na- no way, Naz- Nazareth was not a great place to live. And I can identify with that. I'm from Flint, Michigan. I don't know if you've ever heard of Flint, Michigan or not. Um, yeah, some of you, those of you who are laughing are like, oh, man. <laughs> the water crisis. I think recently, I didn't see it, but I guess a Duke fan was making fun of the water crisis. Yet another reason not to like Duke, amen? All right. Yeah. Uh, a couple of Duke fans. Uh, don't leave, please. <clears throat> But Flint is a town that's oftentimes voted one of the worst places to live in America. If you Google it, it'll it'll come up on some list of one of, if it's not the worst, it's one of the worst places to live in America. That was Nazareth. No one would think God's going to send his son, the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for so long for, is going to come through Nazareth? It's like God's up to something here. And not only that, but through Mary, Mary. It says, what does it say about her right here in the passage? Not just what historians have said, but what does it say about Mary? It says that she's a virgin. She's pledged to be married, which means she's probably between 12 and 14 years old. She's a peasant girl. She's most likely illiterate. We know she's poor because later in Luke chapter 2... They go to bring an offering that women were supposed to bring after they had given birth to a child. It says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. But, but the thing is, that's not what's said in the law of the Lord. You're supposed to bring a lamb. But God's gracious, gracious and he knows that some people can't afford a lamb. And so in Leviticus, it says if you, if you can't afford a lamb, she can't afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons because she can't afford a lamb and so you've got this young girl she's poor probably illiterate 14 years old pledged she's got a plan for her life but she's never going to leave this town she's in this nothing town in the middle of nowhere she's a nobody god's going out of his way to show you this is how i work and it's probably different than what most of you would do he's bringing his only son into the world Almost all parents want what's best for their kid. Everybody here that has kids, you want the best education, the best job opportunities, the best whatever the training is, the best sports opportunity, all the best things, the best meals. If you don't believe that, go, to, go over on Six Forks to Whole Foods and just listen to a conversation about the meals that are happening there. And I haven't heard this conversation, but I can just imagine somebody coming, you know, is this this organic chicken? Oh yeah, it's organic chicken. Like free-range organic chicken? Yeah, free-range organic, grass-fed free-range. Oh no, I'm not eating the grass-fed. Grass has viruses. (laughs) That might not be happening right now, but it'll happen eventually. Grass has viruses. I only want the quinoa-fed organic free-range chicken. You want nothing but the best for your kids. So most of us, if we were writing the story, and we had all power and unlimited resources, are we going to do it like this? Are we going to bring our child into a scandalous situation? She's not married yet. She's pledged to be married, which in that time it was like an engagement, only more serious than our engagements. The only way you could break it off was through divorce, but you were to be together for about a year and not to consummate the marriage. So that she comes up pregnant, shows something happened. It's scandalous, but that's God's plan. It's like God's going out of his way to show grace. See, that's what it means to be highly favored. She's she's troubled by this greeting, highly favored. I'm not highly favored. I'm a poor girl who lives in Nazareth. I'm doing peasant chores. She can't even read. Highly favored? Highly favored? And when you understand what it means to be highly favored, it becomes even more ridiculous that some people would pray to Mary like she's got grace to give. She's totally here, a recipient of grace. There's another place in Scripture where we see these words, these Greek words that are used for highly favored, and it refers to all believers in Jesus Christ. It's in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, and it talks about his glorious grace to be highly favored to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given, not because of anything we bring to the table. She wasn't even praying for this opportunity which is freely given to us, the ones he loves. To receive grace is to get unmerited favor. It's to be giving something you don't deserve. It's not because you're asking for it. It's not because you bring certain talents to the table. It's not because of experiences you've had. It's not because of your training. It's not because of your place in life. It's not because of the, the town that you live in. It's not because of the school that you went to. It's not because of any of those things. It's given freely, totally by God's initiative. And while none of us are going to have the opportunity that Mary has, she's got a unique opportunity to give birth to her Savior. All of us as believers in Jesus Christ have been given great grace. And that's what it means to be highly favored. To be highly favored means to be given great grace. And so my question for you is, do you realize how great the grace is that's been given to you? And many of us here would claim to be recipients of grace, but do you realize how great that grace is? I remember one time early in our church, remember what Pastor I was preaching. We were meeting at the movie theater. It was in Mark chapter 2, and I, I shared an illustration that was a, it was a powerful story of a guy who was a, a rapist, a murderer, convicted, or was going to get the death penalty, and trusted Christ as a savior. I shared that story. Afterwards, a friend of mine, we were in a small group together, we were talking about it, and he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe that that guy was saved. And the conversation ended up going from whether that guy's decision was genuine or not was almost irrelevant. What we were talking about between the two of us was Did he believe that less grace was required for his salvation than was required for that guy? And that's really what it it came down to. And what we see in Scripture is, those of us who don't realize how much grace we've received, we don't love Jesus as much. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Luke chapter 7, on all the gospel stories, Jesus is at the home of this religious guy named Simon, and they're having this meal, but Simon doesn't love Jesus. It's like he's testing him out, checking him out, asking him the questions. They're eating this meal together, and while they're having this meal, this woman comes in who's got a notorious reputation. We don't know exactly what she's done or why, but people know, and it's not good. And she's standing behind Jesus while they're having this meal, and she begins to weep. And what I wonder is, why is she weeping? Like, was it something Jesus said Did he talk about forgiveness? Did he talk about his grace? Or was it just being in the presence of Jesus? We don't know. But she starts to weep, and one of her tears falls on his feet, and she gets down on her knees, and she starts to wipe his feet with her hair, and then she puts some perfume on his feet. And then Jesus starts to teach. Everyone's seeing this, and it's like he's not even acknowledging it. He starts to teach to Simon. He talks about forgiveness and debt, and who has the most debts, and he's giving this lesson to them. And then he stops, and he turns to this woman, but he doesn't talk to the woman. He talks to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? And it's like ridiculous if you start thinking about if you were there at that story. Everyone's paying attention to this woman. And Jesus is just now acknowledging her. Of course, it's a yes. And he says, you didn't show me any hospitality. You didn't kiss me when I got here. You didn't wash my feet. Customs that should have taken place. This woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. She's washing my feet with her perfume. Extravagant love is what I'm seeing here. And then he says, this woman's sins are Many. That's why she loves so much. And the point wasn't that Simon didn't need as much grace or forgiveness. The point was he didn't get it. And so then Jesus says words that we should all remember. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he has been forgiven little loves little. Who's forgiven little? Nobody. We're all forgiven much. We just don't all realize it. It's like in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus gets confronted by some people who are upset, he's hanging out with sinners. And he says, "Why well, didn't come for righteous people like yourselves. Jesus knows the Old Testament and the New Testament says no one is righteous, no, not one. But they don't get it. So my question for you is do you get how much grace has been given to you? And, and I know different stories here. Some of you have had affairs and God's graciously reconciled your marriages. That's all grace. Some of you had addictions. You're still alive. Like, the fact you're sitting here is God's grace. And some of you have had abortions. God's forgiven that. That is grace. You didn't earn that. It wasn't because you cried enough. You felt guilty enough. You paid some penance. That's all grace. But then there's some of you who you think, well, I haven't done that stuff. You know, I trusted Jesus as my Savior when I was six. I wasn't packing heat. You know, I wasn't gang-banging as a six-year-old. No, doing drugs. I've never had this big rebellious stage. And and the temptation is to think that God didn't need as much grace for you. I mean, that is the prayer that I have for my kids, that they will have the most boring testimony. Like, no one wants to do a reality TV show on my kids. Like, I want God just to protect them and preserve them and block the enemy from those things happening in, the, in their life. You don't think that requires a lot of grace? Like, how, easy, how much easier is it to screw your life up, to make a bunch of dumb decisions, and then to look and go, God, now I need you. Than it is for God to graciously protect you through your life. You don't, do you need much grace? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8: for it is by grace you are saved, all of us, not just those who messed up and needed it more later. It is for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your works. You didn't do anything in other words every believer is highly favored by god world changers are highly favored we could stop right now and just start worshiping god because of his great grace in our lives amen but there's more in this passage a second characteristic that we see of a world changer is a world changer trusts in a big god a world changer trusts in a big god not the god that's oftentimes portrayed in our society as a self-help as somebody who's going to help you get a promotion in your job make you feel better about yourself build up your self-esteem but a great God who can do anything. And it's interesting that when we come to this passage, it's about a conversation between an angel and a young girl, that the star character is actually Jesus. Look at verse 31. She's found favor, but then you'll be with child. And remember where we're at. She still doesn't know what any of this means. Like, you know the story, so you've got to back up and pretend like you don't know the, what's going to happen next. She's pledged to be married. She's 14 years old, humble circumstances. You will be with child and give birth to a son. Okay. When I get married, I hope to have multiple children. And you'll give him the name Jesus. The angel says so. That's fine. To us, this seems like some significant prophecy. It's not. That's a common name. Hebrew name, Joshua. In Greek, Jesus. It means the Lord saves, but it was a common name. Lots of people had that name. She probably doesn't get it there. But then verse 32, he will be great. Okay, every parent thinks their kid is great, but the angel's saying that he's great. And if you think about that, just to call Jesus great, that's interesting. But it's, I think, an illustration in worship of, I don't know if you've ever been to the place before where they're singing songs or you're praying, and and your heart's just overflowing with how how grateful you are to Jesus, what he's done, who he is, and words fail you. Like, words are inadequate to describe him. And so here it's like this understated statement about Jesus. He's great. Now, Luke's intentionally contrasting this with the birth announcement that was just given earlier when it said about John the Baptist, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is just called great. There's no qualification. He is great because he's the one who defines greatness, It's not great, now let's talk about what great means, and we'll tear that apart, and that's who Jesus is. No, it's who Jesus is, that's what great means. He will be great. And what does it look like? He'll be called the Son of the Most High, which means the Son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to be a king, but not just any king. What's being referred to here is the prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Messiah is going to come through the line of David. He's not just another descendant of David. He's the son of God, and he's coming through the line of David. He's going to be the king of kings. So now she gets it. Now it starts to dawn on her. Oh, wait a minute. You're not talking about Joseph and I. You're not talking about a baby like one of many babies we're going to have, and we just need to give one of them the name Jesus, Joshua. This is a special child, but not just a gifted child. This is the child that all the Jews have been waiting for. Look at the next statement. He will reign over the house of Jacob, that means Israel, forever. That's not a normal king. Forever. And his kingdom will never end. And you think about that. Forever doesn't just mean a time, just like not now and forever and ever and ever. But that means no one can stop it. It's an unstoppable kingdom. You're not believing it doesn't stop it from being true. Them killing him doesn't stop it from happening. Jews' rejection. He's the king of the Jews. Doesn't stop it. It's an unstoppable kingdom, is what's being said here. Then Mary asks a question that just makes sense. She's not doubting. We know she's not doubting because Zechariah, the priest, in the passage before this, he was doubting. And he gets rebuked by the angel. Same angel. Mary doesn't get rebuked. She's just 14. She knows some stuff. She doesn't have much experience. She says, verse 34 How will this be? Mary asks the angel. Since I'm a virgin. She understood the birds and the beasts. She knew where kids came from. She just hadn't done that. And she hears what's saying, and she's not rejecting it. She's just saying, how? How is this even possible? And God graciously answers. Verse 35, through the angel. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God's going to do this. Will come upon you. The power of the Most High, that's God, will overshadow you. We know we see the cloud representing God's presence in the Old Testament. We see it at the Transfiguration. The the voice comes from the cloud. This is my son. Here, the cloud's going to overshadow her. So, the Holy One, set apart one, different one to be born, will be called the Son of God. In case you didn't get it earlier with the Son of Most High, here it is He's the Son of God. And she doesn't ask for a sign, but then, verse 36, she gets a sign. Even Elizabeth, your relative, this isn't as big of a miracle, but it's still a miracle. She's going to have a child in her old age. And she was barren it was in her sixth month. In verse 37, here's the answer. You want it simple, Mary? You're 14 years old. Maybe you don't understand all that. The glory of God from the Old Testament and the shadow. And you probably weren't thinking of Isaiah 7:14, for the virgin will be with child, but here's the simple answer: Verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. Because essentially the question she asked was, What you're talking about, it's impossible. How is this going to happen? And essentially the angel answers back, oh, God does the impossible. Which is great news for many of us to hear because we've got this phrase in our culture that we sometimes say, even as Christians, and we say it like it's not gonna happen. And the phrase is this, it would take a miracle. And some of you, your circumstances, you look at it in your life, you say, "Well, the only way to change it it would take a miracle. And you got a kid who's rebelling against the Lord, some of your grown children, and say, it would take a miracle. Here's the news I want to give you today. God still does those. Some of you, your marriage, for your marriage to be changed. It would take a miracle. God still does those. Some of you hear promises from Scripture, and you think, well, that's not true in, in my situation. That's not true. That couldn't be true. Romans 8.28 is a great example. God works all things together for those who love him, according to his purposes. You think, well, how could he work this together? For How could this be good? Here's the answer. God still does miracles he does the impossible. He goes, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, Matthew chapter 11. I'll give you rest for your soul because my work is easy. My burden is light. And you say, this is not a light burden. Oh, but he can make it that way. He does the impossible. Go to him with it. He, he still does that. Some of you say, oh, I could never, and obey commands. That He goes, clearly, says, I could never forgive. I could never do that. I could never take that step of faith. I could never be generous like that. I could never share the gospel. I could never be bold. God does the impossible. He can do it through you. He did it in Mary's life. He can do it in yours. And, and I think one of the problems is, for some of us, is we think, oh, God doesn't work that way anymore. He doesn't do that kind of stuff now. And when we see him do the impossible, it becomes, especially at a church like Southbridge, it becomes normal. It's just a normal thing. We see it happen. It's normal. We talked about, we, were, we had a dinner last night with the, with the elders in our church and the leadership team. And we are talking about people coming to Christ regularly on Sunday mornings. I know that at least uh, people that have checked the cards, there has been at least seven people since we started going to this school that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ on Sunday mornings. And that's amazing. But it becomes normal here. And that doesn't even count. Like people that, that some of, we challenge all of our members to have at least one person they're praying for and trying to share the gospel with and, you know, inviting to church, all that stuff. And I, we can't count all those people that come to Christ. I got an email from a guy this past week after last week's message. He said, I just felt led to send you this email and he said he wanted to tell me about his original one because he's been praying for one guy and he's been praying for somebody else now. And so I started praying for this guy, no interest in the gospel, no interest in Jesus. The guy's in jail now. What well, is there, no interest. God broke his heart, fell to his knees, placed his faith in Christ. Now they talk on a weekly basis. That is God doing the impossible. But see, what happens is, and I think it's, it's kind of like, like there's things that we experience in our daily lives that at one time were considered impossible. One time, if you would have said, we're going to send a man to the moon, people are like, there's no way a man's going to the moon. Like, that is impossible. Now we're like, that's boring. Uh, why don't we send some civilians to Mars? <laughs> what about the idea of the automobile? You know, and mo- most of you probably have more than one car. There was a time when uh, um, automobile riding the horses and like the wheel was just invented at one stage. Think about how impossible the automobile was. Or the telephone, think about the telephone. It's such a normal part of our lives. There was a time when people would move from the East Coast to the West Coast, like people would die in the process. They'd be different folks when they got to the other, the other, other side of the country. The idea that you could pick up a device and just talk to them, that's crazy. Now we've got these phones. That's like the simplest thing they do is call people and things are smarter than us. Like, you're going to trick us one day. We're going to pull it out of our pockets. They're playing jokes on us. And so it becomes normal. And when you see God heal diseases and break addictions and reconcile relationships and save people, you go, well, that's not a miracle. And and I ask you, what, what God do you believe in? Because just to be a Christian, you have to have faith in, not just believe facts of, you have to have faith in that God came to this earth, put on flesh, was fully human, fully God. Think about that for a second. Fully human, fully God, lived a sinless life, was tempted in all ways just as we are, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, not for his own sins, there was no crime against him, but was still nailed to a cross. Think about the circumstances of that. Died for your sins and my sins. The wrath of God poured out on him. He's dead for three days and then has risen from the dead. So you have faith in that? Because then you'll hear people say, even believers, even people in in small groups and things like that, I don't know about that whole whale story. (laughs) I'm not so sure. Jesus walking on water. I don't think the disciples were lying, but maybe it just seemed like he was walking on water. I don't know about that lunch situation. Wait, but you believe that God died for three days and then rose from the dead, and you're having a hard time with a lunch party? No wonder you can't believe that he could do the impossible in your life. So my question for you is, do you believe in the big God, the God that we talk about from the Bible? Or is it a God that you fashioned that's much smaller and much more manageable? See, world changers believe, because then you can trust. And then you can trust in any and every circumstances that he is sovereign, that he's in control, that he is orchestrating these things for your good, ultimately, and for his glory. And he's going to do a great work, and he's got a plan, and his plan is not just to change you, but to use you. Remember, that's the premise of this whole series. That God does not work in your world to change your world so he can use you to change the world for Jesus Christ. But he can do that because he can do the impossible. And what we've seen in verses 31 through 37 is that's exactly what he does, for nothing is impossible with God because he's a big God. He's great, He's the king of kings. He is the Lord that will reign forever, that nothing can stop his reign. And the reality is, as we look at these first two characteristics of a world changer, they're more about God than they are about the person. He's the one who gives great grace. Highly favored. He's a big God. And it's really just this one verse that highlights what Mary brings to the table. It's the last verse. It's verse 38. But before I read verse 38, let me remind you of our context. Poor girl, nothing town, middle of nowhere, but she does have a plan for her life, verse 26. She's pledged to be married. So try and imagine being married. You're told this information. You're told that you're going to give birth. You're a virgin. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. From your womb is going to come the one that Jews have been waiting for for a long time. What do you say back? Ah, door number two, angel? (laughs) Is there another option? But look at what she says. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Done. Boom. Contract signed. It's happening. She says that she's a servant. Interesting that she says, I am the Lord's servant, the one who's going to be in her womb. I'm the servant of the one that I'll give birth to. How many rights does a servant have? Zero. So the next statement just makes sense. Whatever you want to do, here's my life. May it be to me, as you have said, that's total surrender. Uh, the characteristic, the third characteristic of a world changer is a world changers are surrendered servants to God. They're surrendered servants of the one true living God, the one who gives great grace, the one who is a big God. Their lives are, it's, you actually know more than me. You are more powerful than me. I believe that you are better than me. So therefore, I surrender my life totally to you. They're surrendered servants of God, the one true God. And when I read this statement this week, unlike other times before, you know, read this statement and preach this passage before, I think about Mary saying, may it be to me as you have said. It reminds me of what her son's going to say 30 some years later. When he's in the garden, sweating drops of blood, and says, not your will, or not my will, but your will. Not what I want to do, but God, whatever you want to, whatever your will, desire, that is what you desire. Whatever you desire to be done. Even if it's harder, I trust that it's better. And it was harder. And for Mary, you think about simple plans. Probably never going to leave that town. She's going to have some kids. But for her, a nice life. Mary, Joseph. And she doesn't say back to the angel, can you just give me one thing? Can you just, can you just have Joseph believe me? There's no negotiating here. It's not, like, hey, just have my mom and dad not reject me, Okay. I don't want people to think that I committed adultery. Can you just—I mean, I've—I've I've been pure, and i I've tried hard here. She doesn't say any of that stuff, and we know that stuff's going to happen. Joseph doesn't believe her. We read Matthew chapter one, and she probably gets rejected by many people. We know that even later in Jesus' life, you're an illegitimate child. He gets accused of being born. There was adultery. There was something that happened here. She's not asking about her reputation. She's not asking about her marriage. She's not asking. But could you just keep this one dream? Can I just have this one? That it's whatever you want. May it be to me as you have said, with every area of my life. And so I was thinking about that this week. And then combined with what Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. I was thinking, well, so many times we, we want those things to be true in our lives, but they're not. There's a reason they're not. And so the one thing that Mary brings to the table, she just says, here I am, I'm available. You do what you want to do with my life. Even if that's more difficult than what I would write up. And I've always kind of thought about, when I think about coming up with my own plan versus God's plan, kind of like a piece of paper, a contractual thing. But this week I was thinking about, maybe it's because Mary's so young. She might even be as young as 12 years old. I was thinking about, what about kids? Like, when do you start forming the plan for your life? And I started about kids' building blocks. And so that's why we got this wall here uh, today, the building block wall. And I thought about, well, every piece kind of represents thoughts that we have about our future. And you put these pieces together, and eventually you build a plan. And so you come up with you know, foundational things that are there and you can call them whatever you want. You get, you get like your dreams that are there that you can have and, and you've got your you know, career thoughts. And if you're married, you've got your marriage going and then you've got you know, whatever the various aspects are going to be. You've got your ambitions and, and different goals that you have and you've got your financial life all planned out and you've got your you know, hobbies and vacation thoughts. And you can just keep going with all the thoughts that you have but eventually, what you do is you build this thing up so high, you've got a barrier between you and God. You think it's a plan, like you're just wanting him to sign off on it. Before long, you've got this barrier. And I was thinking about it and thinking, what is the thing that's actually stopping so many of us? It's not a rebellious sin that we think of. It is. We just don't think of it that way. What is the thing that's actually stopping us from experiencing God's will? I think it's blocking us from walking in his plan is actually our own plan and it's not a bad plan i'm not saying you're like well i'm gonna you know have five wives and go with the polygamy thing people did in the old testament i'm saying like some rebellious thing what i'm saying is we think it's good stuff like we got a good plan and we think god i could glorify you and if you just give me this job and if you just have me have this spouse and if i had this kind of marriage and if i had these kinds of, and we put the blocks together and before long we're standing behind this deal and it's actually stopping. God, Are you speaking? I can't hear you. It's like you're not there. And it's our own fault. And then you look at what he did with, with Mary. It's like you just, oh, there you go, Mary. There's your plan. All done. And then what blows me away is that Mary doesn't go, okay, God, well, here, I'm trying to start putting this thing back together. If you could just work things out with Joseph and I, then we'd be good. But what it's like with Mary is like she, instead, I'm going to build a path to the Lord. And the only way you build a path is by surrendering. Okay, may it be to me as you have said with Joseph. And may it be to me as you have said with our finances and our reputation and our health. And our, and you just start one thing after another. Here's, here's our kids. You want us to name them Jesus? We'll name them Jesus. You're going to die on a cross someday? Okay. And then the question becomes for us, can we do that? Here's my faith, here's my family, here's my money, here's my, may it be to me as you have said with my marriage. May it be to me as you have said with my church. May it be to me as you have said with every area of your life. And before you answer the question, what if it means cancer? What if it means AIDS? What if it means lupus? What if it means persecution? What if it means moving to a different place? What if it means totally different than what you're thinking and way harder Do you trust that a good and big God knows that that's the best way that I can use you to glorify my name? And it's only for this life you're going to be with me for eternity, forever and ever my kingdom will reign. You get to be a part of it because you're highly favored by his grace. See, those are world changers. And so I ask you today, and maybe it's not every element, and you just think, I'll just surrender my whole life. What was there an area of those things that maybe stops you, hinders you, blocks you? Would you surrender that today? Regardless of what that looks like. Because Mary doesn't know. She doesn't know what's going to happen. It's possible she's going to be accused of adultery, it's possible she's killed for this. Not practiced in this time, but there was a law that said you commit adultery, you can be stoned to death. Your very life would you give? Let's pray. Father, may it be to us as you have said. You've got a plan for us. You tell us in Ephesians 2.10, you've prepared good works for us. And we know that you're preparing us to do those good works. And you've prepared us to be in these very seats today. You've prepared us to be at this very place today to do a work in our lives right now. And Father, there are some here that may need to trust your son Jesus as Savior For the first time and I pray for them right now God I pray you'd put a heavy conviction on their hearts I pray that you'd draw them to you I pray that you'd show them the beauty of your forgiveness and grace and they would call upon you and if that's you and you need to trust Jesus as your Savior we're going to have prayer counselors after the service in the back of of the room in both corners and they'd love to talk with you just go to them say I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and Father I pray for those of us that are believers that are still in this process and all of us we're in this journey of becoming more like your son Jesus And God, thank you for giving us a a picture of somebody who surrendered like Mary. And we know we saw last week somebody who was fighting in that process. And what I can't, and here's why, and I can't speak in this situation. And and then just see somebody like Mary that just says, here, it's all yours. We want to be like that. God, will you you bring us to the place where our will is your will? We want... And we might not want the difficulty that'll come, and we might not want the rejection that may come from someone, or the persecution, or any of that stuff, but we want to do what you want more than we want anything else. Give us a longing for you. Give us a desire for you. Thank you for whatever work you did in Mary's heart to bring her to this place. Will you do that work on us? Please transform us. Thank you for your grace. You've given incredible grace. Help us to be overwhelmed by your grace. Thank you that you are a big God that we can't put into a box, that we can't make do what we want done. We trust you with what you want done. In Jesus' name I pray.